I'd like to talk today a little bit about, since we are focused on Christmas, and I thought about Jesus, and a lot of times we look at Jesus in so many, I mean, we can look at him in so many different ways. But I, like, I really like to look at Jesus in the, in the sense of him being God's son. And so I thought about how we could look at ourselves as being God's sons, God's daughters of, 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 of our Most High God. So I, that's my focus, our identity as God's sons. Because there's a difference between a son and a servant. Now, a lot of Christians today look at themselves simply as servants or worms. But I don't want you to see yourself anymore as a worm or as a servant. I want you to look at yourself as what God wants you to look at yourself as a son of God. And if you're a lady, then you could be a daughter of God. It's okay. So that's, that's just what I want to talk about. So I wanted to open, and I did open with this scripture earlier. Some of you were not even in the room at that point. But Isaiah, let's go to Isaiah first. And I wanted to open up with this scripture in Isaiah chapter 9, which I did share about in the beginning when I opened. Let me get to my place here. There it is. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. A lot of titles for one son, amen? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the increase of his government, and, and uh, of the increase of his government and peace, there will, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. And then also there's a scripture that I just, I'll share with you. I'm not going to, unless you can turn there, I don't, I don't have my. King James, I'm just in my new King James, but in the King James version of Galatians 4, 7, it says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, now heir is not A-I-R, you're not an heirhead, uh, you're an heir, H-E-I-R, an heir of God, which means that you, in, the word heir comes from the word inheritance, so everything that Jesus inherited, you get. And if you don't know this or not, he also, not only did he get all the Father's blessings and the inheritance of the Father's blessings, but he also inherited everything that Abraham got. All the blessings of Abraham went to Jesus, and all the blessings from the Father went to Jesus. And then when we accept Christ as our Savior, we get all the blessings of Jesus, all the blessings of the Father, and all the blessings of Abraham. I don't know about you, but that makes me full. I feel full, you know. I feel like I got a full plate here. And so that's why that, that's what that means in that verse. But if you will turn with me, I also want to share another uh, scripture with you, which I, this, this scripture is really my last scripture in my teaching today, but I would like to read it to you early so that if you're, just, just so that I can get to it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Hebrews 2.10. And really, I don't know, sometimes when I look at these larger scriptures, you know, some scriptures are small, like John 6, Jesus wept. I mean, that's a small scripture. I mean, if you were to memorize a scripture, that's where you'd begin. Jesus wept. Can you handle that? That's what I do with all the students. I say, you want to start memorizing scriptures? Let's start there. Jesus wept. Then you can go to Hebrews 13:1, which is only five, five, five words. You know, and then let brotherly love continue. And then, you know, we can work on the bigger scriptures. And before you know it, we'll be in the Amplified Bible, you know, memorizing scriptures. But this scripture is a, a little larger scripture, Hebrews 2.10. But 
But really, I want the, 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 the interior of the scripture is really where the, the truth of what I'm talking about today. But it says this. I'm going to read the whole thing and then emphasize it. For It was fitting for Christ, for him, Christ, for whom all things and by whom all things. And here, here is, the, here is the, the like, you know, like when, how many know when you make a sandwich, what really counts is what between the two slices of bread? You know, how many know that's true? How many, but how many has ever made a sandwich with two slices of bread? Yep. <laughs> it's the sandwich of faith. <laughs> Believing that there's something in the middle. But it says this, it says, By whom all things, and this was the key here, in bringing many sons to glory. Bringing many sons to glory. That was the reason Jesus came. You know, God was not just happy with one son. He wanted a family of sons. And that's why he came. And Jesus came to bring us into that understanding. But I, over, my, over all of the years when I was a young boy and a young man, and then I accepted Christ, my background before I accepted Christ, I had two things in my background. I had religion and I had performance. And I was really good at performance. How I many of we all come from different backgrounds? That may not be your background, but mine were religion and performance. I mean, some people's backgrounds are alcoholics. Other people have a, a violent background. They're, they're people who are very violent. Some people come from drugs. they got a drug back, background. But my vice, literally, my vice was performance. I mean, you can easily get drunk on performance and being an American. That's why the book written by Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven Life, sold so many copies that Rick, who pastors 25,000 members in his church, doesn't even take a salary from his church because the book Purpose Driven Life, so many copies, so many languages in 20 different languages, sold so many copies in, the, in, in America that he never has, ever has to take another salary from his congregation. You know how many pastors in America are like that? There's probably, probably 20, 30 pastors in America who take no salary from the church. They live off of their book sales money that they get as they write their books. It's an incredible thing. But American lifestyle has a tendency to be performance-minded. Performance-minded. How many agree with me? Pretty, pretty performance-minded. Boy, so you can easily get drunk on your performance, your own ability to do good, and you can easily chase success without resistance among the people of the world. You become literally intoxicated with your own ability to perform for God until you think that your ability and your performance defines you. And you'll notice this when you go places. Sometimes you go to different places and you'll have a group of people in a room and people will come, you know, and they'll start talking, you know, men will start talk with men or women... And when the men talk to men, they always ask, what do you do for a living? You know, they don't care if, uh, they don't care if you, anything else about your life, they want, to, they want to know, how do you perform in life? And so performance, again, becomes like a, literally like a drug. And when we attach our identity to what we do, then we'll base our value on our ability to perform rather than who we are in Christ. And that becomes a problem. Because if you're trying to find out who you are in Christ, 
and the world's telling you something else about who you are, which I said to you last week, that's what Nicole's whole book is about. The world told her who she was. She was a bipolar, depressed person. And the doctors told her that, and they told her that she would never get healed. She would, she would be, her disease is incurable. And then when she got healed by the power of the Holy Ghost and the power of the cross, she went back to her doctor, Dr. Brown, I said this last week, and she, he, she, she asked the doctor, the physician, to please document her healing, and the doctor says, I can't. It's going to come back. You're not going to be healed. And she says, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just going on. So she wrote her book so that she could help others. But today, when you arrive at most churches in America, you could find Apostle Paul, who writes two-thirds of the New Testament. You could find his three-point sermon in almost 99% of the churches in America. Let me tell you what it is. Number one, the point number one is what should you do? What you should do concerning the law. What you should do. The second point that you'll find is how you should do it concerning zeal. The zeal that you should have in doing what you should be doing. <laughs> and the third one is what you can expect to get from God for doing what you just have to do. Now, the big question is, <clears throat> should, what you should do. I have a friend who's an author. His name is Steve McVeigh. Steve said that the word should is real close to the word S-H-I-T. He said it. I didn't say it. He said it. He says, did you ever wonder how many times in a day you say you should be doing something? Did you ever count it? They said the average is, each person's average is 23 times a day. I should be going shopping. I should be at the bank. I should get ready for Christmas. I should buy some gifts for my friends or my grandchildren. I mean, we repeat the word should statements over and over again and they leave us feeling bad about ourselves because in the should thing, we are condemning ourselves when we keep using that statement over and over and over. And the other word that can bring uh, equally a bad thought is uh, the word must. I must, I must, I must. So should, for the most part, is an instant or an instrument, what I would call an instrument of regret because it's telling you that you missed something, and then you start saying it. You don't even know that sometimes unconsciously you're saying this word, and it's causing all of this feelings in you, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of depression, all because you're saying this word, and you're saying it over and over. And it's not easy to remove that from your vocabulary. I mean, shoulds lead to incredible frustration and lowers our motivation and productivity. We just stop doing anything because we get caught in the should. I mean, just listen to how many times somebody at work will tell you, you should be doing something. You should be doing better than this. You should be producing more product than what you're producing. You should. And it'll be constant. It'll be constant. Shoulds are limiting and shoulds are tricky little buggers. 
full of subtle, subtle nuances, and they hold us back while alerting us. But going on from the three-point sermon of Apostle Paul, you have a choice. You can choose to be God's restful sons, daughters, or you can choose to be stressful servants. What's your choice? A or B? You want to be a restful son or daughter of God? Or you want to be a stressful servant? A or B? You can't say all of the above. <laughs> or none of the above. See, today, if you're going into any gathering of believers and you ask the million-dollar question that is on every church menu, it would be, what do I get from God if I accept Him? What do you get from God? And now while effort may very well work in getting us from point A to point B in the natural or in the world, amen, day-to-day things, it's a very poor substitute for the grace of God in the realm of the Spirit. And whenever we start putting our hands to the process of receiving favor, anointing, healing, and blessing, etc., we do not find ourselves in a restful place of peace, but in a stressful place of servanthood. And, I, and if you, if just when you get some time today, go to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, and look at... Paul's life before he was Paul. He was Saul. He was stressed out because his job was to go from place to place and get Christians and put them to death because they were against the law of God. And he said he did it with zeal. Saul. And then he has a conversion on the road of Damascus in Acts 9 and he becomes Paul. He goes from the mentality of a slave and a servant to the mentality of a son of God. And that's where we have to go. We have to go from a mentality of stressful servants to a mentality of restful sons and daughters of God. And we then can enjoy Christmas and rest in His peace. Amen? But there's a process. But whenever we start putting our hands to the plow and we start thinking we have to do it, we get in trouble. Because... We have to, and, and today, we have to serve in order to, and there's so many places, and I'm not saying you don't have to serve here, I'm just saying you do it out of your identity of, as a son, and not as a stressful servant. Because in a lot of places, you're not accepted in the club, the gathering, or the church of what's happening now, unless you're a stressful servant, and you're doing as much as you can in your hands to the plow, and you're plowing. And in that moment, we lose our rest, we lose our peace. My wife is a great advocate. You can ask her. You don't, she don't do nothing unless she has peace. You know, and I, I like that about her. It's not that she doesn't do anything. I'll tell you what, she does more than I could do in 100, 100 years. You know, and she's a, she's a great, she just, but she has that focus of peace. And any moment that we lose our rest or we forget our covenant and we become like that guy in the Old Testament, Samson. I mean, there heard about Samson. Samson was a son who sold his identity as a son to become a slave. Read about it. Judges chapter 13 through 16. Judges 13 through 16. I don't have time. If we got into that thing and I went verse by verse with you, 
you would be here to 5 o'clock with me. Because when I go verse by verse, I go, I mean, I just go like, I go all over the place. We get rabbit trails going every which way, you know. But read about it, because Samson, with a shaved head and gouged eyes, this is the end of his life, in Judges 16, 21, he had a shaved head, he had gouged eyes, he spent his whole time pushing and pulling and grinding. It says he was grinding corn for another man's vision. Rather than restfully living and advancing the kingdom of God, Samson is a great example of a son who traded his place as a son for a servant mentality. And when we push the miles, the millstone long enough, what to do, how to do it, what to expect, then we start to approach Christianity as a stressful servant-slave mentality forced into a set of actions and performance in order to meet with approval. we got to please God. He's already pleased with Jesus. And He's happy. God is a happy God. And He doesn't need us to strenuous try to please Him in any kind of way. And when we do that, we surrender the covenant rest of a son who has the knowledge of who He is and what His Father thinks of Him. See, sons will never face the day in the same way a servant does. Never. See, when servants get up in the morning, the first thing they do is they look for the list. The list of demands, the things I have to do. And they work to accomplish those demands so that they can be rewarded at the end of the day. Sons face the day with identity. Not, I'm talking about, I want servants, not I'm going to sons. Sons face the day with identity. They work out, not towards that identity. See, they know who they are. They're in the house with daddy. They're family. They're part of the kingdom. They're kingdom shareholders. So they're not stressing themselves out. You know, you read, when you read Acts, I mean, not Acts, when you read John 15 about the vine and the branches, the, the, when you're the fruit and, you're, on, and you're, you're plugged into the vine and the branches, the fruit happens automatically. As the sap comes through, Jesus comes through, everything happens without any stress, without anything that I have to do. And sons, they awake with the thought, I am my father's son. I am my father's daughter. And whatever he possesses and owns, I own the same. Go to Luke 15. Luke 15. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Actually, I like the whole chapter, but this one seems, this one part of the Luke 15 sort of takes precedent. It's called the prodigal son. How many know the prodigal son? But we're not going to focus today on the younger son because everybody focuses on him taking all the money, the father's money, wishing it was dead, taking daddy's money and going partying and coming back and wanting to be a servant. Well, just so you know, when he came back with his rehearsed speech to be a servant, the father wouldn't allow him to be a servant. He made him a son. Read it. It's phenomenal about every person who comes to God. He needs to come as a son, come as a daughter. But in Luke 15, verse 25, and we're going to start in verse 25 of Luke 15. 
And we're going to talk about the other son, because how many know there was two sons in the prodigal? There was another son. He was the older son. But in Luke 15, 25, it says, So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come because he has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the big, fatted calf. So we're going to have some big, big steak. Amen. Thank you, Mark, for the sound effects. Verse 28. This is talking about the older brother here. He says, but he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him, it says. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years, I have been, what? I have been, I have been, I have been, what have I been doing? What's the next verse? Lo, these many years I have been serving you. Stressful servants. Stressful servants. And we're going to talk about that in a few more minutes and give you the example. I have never, I never, I never transgressed your commandment at any time. I'm perfect. And yet you never gave me even a skinny young goat with ribs showing. Sound familiar? That I might make merry with my friends. Verse 30, really important verse. But as soon as this son of yours... That's like, you talk about ingrates... You talk about an orphan mindset. You talk about a son that doesn't get it at all. And what's sad is most of the church don't get it at all about what they possess in the new covenant, what they have in Christ. They trade it for so so many things, beggarly elements of this world, when they could have the abundance of all the things that God has for them. Who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, You killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, do you notice what he just said to him? He said, Son, you are always with me. And all that that I have is... What do you lack? Church, what do we lack? Yes, we are, Jack. All that you have is yours. And what and was it it was right, he says the Father, that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and was found. Well, if you don't know this or not, I'm going to tell you the elder brother ended his life being a prodigal too. He wasted years of his life and put stress on his mind surrendering his superior position of a son for the inferior position of a servant. His labor ended with frustration in the field, a joyless existence. How many people today in America? I mean, Christmas is happening. They're joyless. Black Friday, I'll give you the Black Friday scenario. 
everybody's, you think they're going to buy Christmas gifts? No, they're going to buy the biggest TV they can, and if you touch it, you're dead. If you're in my way and I have a gun in my hand, I'll shoot you dead, I'll get my TV. That's America. I think every believer should stay away from Black Friday. Totally. It's a total stress. And if you were to listen to you know, any one of the news stations, they would tell you that 90% of the companies who build the products that they sell on Black Friday are inferior products. Because you think consumers are going to give you their best product for their cheapest price? What are you, crazy? I don't become a billionaire by doing that. In a consumer culture, I'm going to give you the worst option I can give you. And if your TV even lasts two months and you have to throw it away, they don't even care. Because how many know the TVs today are throwing? When your TV doesn't work, you're not getting a repairman to come out and fix it. In my mother's generation, in my generation, early generation, if your TV broke, you called the TV repairman. Am I right, Jen? Yeah. How many of you don't do that today? If your TV broke, you take it off the wall, weighs five pounds, you throw it in the garbage. And you go buy another TV. I mean, what a world we live in today. Dark and dreary and hellish and no room for joy or rest. And when we choose to live with that performance mindset that I had before I knew Jesus, doing to get. I'm only giving to God because I know God's going to give me something back. Otherwise, I'm not giving. Hogwash. Ah, people teach that stuff, man. I'm telling you, pastors teach that stuff. You give your 10, 10% and God's going to give it back. In spades, it will give you 30, 60, 100 fold. It sells. Because it sells to the American mindset of performance. Doing to get. And we're going to be just like the older son who stood out in the yard refusing to celebrate the resurrection of the younger son who returns home and be the older son who's angry that God would even allow a young man to come in our church with purple hair. And then you want us to minister to him. It's, you're reading my notes now. I'm not on that page, but we're going to get there. And so the older son says to the father, I haven't been given what is mine, sir. You know how many, how many people I know who are good fathers can't get their children to call them dad or father? They call them by their first name. How much do I have to work to get anything out of this Scenario from you, what do I have to do? What do I get if I give? What do I get? How much zeal do I have to show? I've walked the steps. I did it with passion. And here's what I expect. His performance had a mentality in which divorced him from his younger brother and his father. 
And he never said, my brother has come home. But rather he said, this son of yours. And what did the father do in that prodigal story? He gave the the prodigal son anything he wanted. His full inheritance. When in those cultures you didn't get your full inheritance until the father was dead. He gave it all. And when the son came back and wanted to rehearse, he wanted to come back because he was totally lost everything, what did the father do? He forgave him forever. He was already forgiven. The moment he gave the stuff to the son, he already forgave him. See, if you maintain a forgiving heart in any kind of a broken relationship, you'll never have a problem with that person. And when you hold unforgiveness or bitterness to another person, you don't do any damage to that person. That stuff hurts you and causes you sickness. They say that 80% of the people today suffering from MS is a result of unforgiveness. Result of unforgiveness and stress in their body. And I say, go ahead. Hold on to law and see where you get. Will it get you in the... Reject God's gift of grace. And the face of... Go ahead and believe the lies of the world telling you who you are rather than believing who God says you are. I'll tell you, ambitious ambition in our world has created a competitive rift for the brother. I mean, it wasn't enough that he was the older son. And the father says, all that I have is yours. That wasn't enough. You know what he wanted to be? He wanted to be the best son. I want to be daddy's best son. Here you go. Read. This is Cain and Abel reimagined in the New Testament. And why the competition? Why the competition? We got 80, how many, how many NBA teams competing on TV? We got NFLs competing on, why the We got little kids, I mean, I go see my grandson, I saw my grandson yesterday play basketball. Got hurt. Because it's all about the American dream, competition. Competing, 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 which creates things in people that we call pride. And we just look at our government. We got Americans, we got Democrats against Republicans. We got a president that can't do anything because we have split parties. We got division. We have a separated nation. And it's just pride, pride, pride. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride will always lead to destruction. And this separation was of his own doing, and it was all, this this, this son, it was all in his head. This older son, his separation was already there in his head. And Colossians 1, 21 says to us, as new believers in Christ, and you, he's telling us, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. What were the wicked works? Performance. What were the wicked works? Pride. I could do it. I don't need any help. I don't need any Jesus. I don't need any God. I could do it myself. Wicked works, yet now He has reconciled 
the work the older son was doing for his father was probably good, was probably right by all accounts. But it had become wicked as it mentally separated him from the right to call himself son. Son. And the work was also rooted in an effort to become something rather than work out of the identity, working out of the mindset of a son rather than working out of the mindset of a stressful servant. Work from identity is beautiful as long as we're created for such. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that. And I let's go there to that scripture. That's, I just love it. I mean, I can quote it for you, but it doesn't mean no good if you don't read it. You know, I'm not going to tell you the statistics of people who don't even read their Bible during the week. Make you, make you real sad. And it's negative and it's condemning. But it's true! Sad, sad, but true. Ephesians 2.10. It says, For we are His workmanship. Or New Living Translation says, Masterpiece. For we are His workmanship. <coughs> created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see, we're saved first. We're created in Him, His masterpiece. And then out of that identity, we serve. We're sons and daughters first. And then we serve, but we serve out of love and gratitude and peace not stress, not have to, not have to get points, not have to please God. He's already pleased with you. He's just asking you to be who you've always been called to be, sons and daughters of God. Amen? And so the Father responds, Son, you and I have always been together. And whatever belongs to me belongs to you. So I'm throwing a party for your brother. And it's the right thing to do because he had died, but now he's alive again. I mean, what theology? What a relationship. And we live in the Father's house, and what is His is ours. And we can celebrate radically, irrationally, illogical grace as we watch people go from being dead in their understanding of God and His love to alive in the knowledge of who they are now in Christ. That's what makes me happy every And the church shouldn't run from the message of God's grace. They should run to it and abandon all others. But we got the church running from grace. After they get saved, they run the law. What do I got to do? What do I got to get? How do I get? How do I get more of God? How do I get more? How do I do more? How do I stress out? For so long and even today, so many Christians in our world think that for the lack of receiving from God, was a reflection on their poor performance. I'm not allowed to say hello anymore because my wife said not to do it. But I'll tell you what, it's worth saying hello on that one. 
in reality, the Bible says in James chapter 4, we don't get what we want because we don't ask. And remember the words of the Father to the elder brother, and know they're the same words to you. You and I have always been together, and everything I have, the Father says, belongs to you. Okay, let's go through this again. What do you lack? And too many, even in the church today, still believe that God rewards according to our work, what we do, all the shoulds. In other words, we do a bunch of good stuff and God moves. Do good, get good. Do bad, get I mean, that's the world. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not the tree of life. And when that happens, we often think that God moved because of what I did. Because I prayed enough, God moved. Because I read my Bible enough, God blessed me. We've got to get to the place where we have to understand all we're always together and all that I have is yours. So we don't have to earn a penny of it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And this, our experience has taught us we keep doing it over and over. If we keep praying enough, we keep fasting enough, we keep doing enough, then God's going to keep blessing us. And over and over and over, and the wheel keeps going and going and going. What happens when spiritual or rewarded, that we anticipate, we, we become a soul. We stress out. And we go through the checklist of the do's and don'ts, the rights and the wrongs, adding and taking away in the endless attempt to satisfy God. I've had, I've had couples walk out of here. When, Pastor, when? When are you going to win the loss? I said, I'm a shepherd. I'm not a sheep. Sheep beget sheep. Shepherds don't. The shepherd feeds the sheep. The sheep reproduce. Constantly badgering me. Because they have the performance mindset that the people pay the clergy, which I'm not, just so you know. Pay the clergy to do the work of the ministry. My Bible says we do the work of the ministry together in the book of Ephesians. Amen? And I, I, I have to liken this to what I would call, and this is just my term. You don't have to like my term. You can make your own term. But I kind of liken this to parlor, thing, parlor games. Or what the Indians used to do in the old days, they used to do rain dancing. They go to rain. God's going to move. God, God's going to move. God, God's going to move. You don't get it? If we do something, God will do something. If I dance enough, if I sing enough, if I worship enough, if I pray enough, if I praise enough, if I give enough, then God's going to do something. When He's already done it all, because He said in John 19.30, when He died on the cross, He said, it is finished. It's done. 
I get to enjoy everything he has done. I get to enjoy it. All my life I get to discover all that God gave me because it will take you an eternity to first of all trust him. I had a lady come in my office this week who's known the Lord over 35 years and she said to me, I just got the revelation. 35 years. She knows no small Christian either, I'll tell you right now. I just got the revelation on trusting God. you got to understand, for a long, many years, I was a supervisor of 15 churches, overseer. And I would put pastors and their wives in their positions of ministry. And they would all say to me, how are we going to make this happen? I said, faithfulness for about 20 years, and then seeing some results. And they looked, they looked at me like I was lying to them. And I just had one husband and wife after 15, 20 years come to me and say, you were right. You were right. You can't change a life in one sermon. It's can. And it's the belief that if we play long enough, the truth seems fairly, the truth seems fairly simple, yet quite what I would call convoluted. And I, one final thought before we move on is Jesus' story of the prodigal answers that question. The father was not good because the older brother was good. The father was good and the older brother, with all of his idiosyncrasies and his hatred, could have had anything he wanted and have it any time at all, which begs the question, which begs the question, do you want to go into the party you don't deserve? Church, do we want to go to the party we don't deserve? I do. I tell people this. I tell people this all the time. I'll give you another counseling 101. If somebody stands up here and prophesies to somebody in this room, and you say, oh, I didn't get nothing. Why, did they, why are they so special? Why did they get that prophetic word? I didn't get nothing. You know what I tell people that said? You could have whatever you want. If that person's prophesying to that person, and you say, Lord, I want that too, you get it too. You have not because you ask not. 